And it dovetailed very nicely into my non-monogamous experience because a lot of the things that in my head are just part and parcel of being autistic are what make all the social norms surrounding monogamy just fundamentally not make sense to me. They're the things that make being non-monogamous utterly intuitive at this point, right? such that it, it completely baffles me. I have to have a whole separate thing in my head of the stuff the neurotypicals do that just does not make sense, but is what they do. And I have to be able to recognize it to function in a world where they made all the rules. And basically everything about monogamy is in that box, along with you got to make eye contact when you talk to someone. And if you just say exactly what you mean, they're going to digest it into a slurry of you know, politeness and relationship markers that aren't there anyway. So you got to put those in. Welcome to Normalizing Non-Monogamy, the podcast where we interview incredible people from across the entire spectrum of non-monogamy to hear their fascinating stories. We strive to bring guests on the show who have a healthy approach to non-monogamy. However, it's important to remember that everyone does it a little bit differently, and the views and opinions expressed by our guests do not necessarily reflect our own. Additionally, we produce this show for entertainment purposes only. Please be aware that we aren't doctors or therapists. Consult a medical professional for anything regarding your health that you might learn about on the show. Enjoy! Welcome to episode 283. We're Finn and Emma. And today we have a wonderful conversation with Alyssa. Alyssa has been exploring non-monogamy for about 10 years, and she shares an incredible journey with us today. She's also a writer and speaker and loves focusing on social issues, specifically LGBTQ and transgender issues. Yeah, as, as Emma said, this is a wonderful conversation. And, and one of the things that you'll, you'll hear Alyssa say pretty early on is that the discovery of non-monogamy was like a chorus of angels <laughs> descending from heaven. And that life sort of just finally made sense. And uh, one of the other things that Alyssa loves talking about and writing about is neurodiversity. And uh, in that same vein, she's recently published a book. Yes. So this book is part of the More Than Two Essentials series, which we're going to talk about in just a second. But the book that, that Alyssa wrote is called Non-Monogamy and Neurodiversity. And so anybody who just heard me say more than two is probably familiar with the the much accredited tome, uh, More Than Two, that was written by Eve Rickert and Franklin Vaux many years ago. Yeah. And the brand More Than Two has sort of been reclaimed by Eve, as best we understand it, in the in the last couple of months, I think, actually, just in the last year. Yeah. And so the website now to check out the work for More Than Two is morethan2.ca. That will take you to Eve's site and a list of other books that are part of the Essentials Guides. There are six of them coming in 2023. There's this one on neurodiversity written by uh, Alyssa. Written by Alyssa. There's also one on happiness, teaching, abuse, death, and jealousy. So there's a whole series of guides that are sort of tied to the original book. I don't believe you need to read the original book in order for these guides to be useful, but just no, wanted I think to make yeah. that clear. Yeah, they're under the More Than Two brand by Eve now. Yeah. And so definitely go check this out. We are super excited about this book and super excited about this conversation. It is it is amazing. And I just I wanted to read one one quick excerpt from Alyssa's website that also maybe kind of sums up who Alyssa is and again, love this conversation. So this is again from the bio uh, the bio on Alyssa's website. 
I'm a biology PhD who knows how to write and speak on a stage, whether it's highly technical scientific documents, psychological fiction about robots falling in love, an informative presentation on fish biology, or a heart-rending prolemic about the reality of being transgender. I can put words together to meet your needs. <laughs> and I think what you will what you will learn as you listen to this conversation is Alyssa has an incredible way with words, and I'm really excited about it. Yes, this is an incredible interview. Uh, please stay tuned, listen, and don't forget to go check out Alyssa's work at her website too. Links are in the show notes. Which are on our website, normalizingnonmonogamy.com, and you can click on the podcast tab. Nailed it. We also have one more quick announcement before we jump into our other announcements, and that is some incredibly sad news that yeah. we learned in the last week that we wanted to just touch on here at the front of the show. Yeah, we heard news that the bomber of Black and Kinky podcast passed away this week, and we're incredibly saddened by this news. Bomber and Bell of the Black and Kinky podcast are incredible and have been incredible members of the non-monogamy community and podcasting community. And we just want to send our condolences and love to family and friends and just wanted to, yeah, send that here. Yeah. Yeah. I think one of the things that's interesting about this world that Emma and I landed in five years ago or so is it's it's big enough that you don't get to know everybody in the way that you want, but it's also small enough that it's sort of like a family. Yeah. This sort of non-monogamy relationship, alternative relationship podcasting community Everybody kind of knows everybody a little bit. And Bomber and Bell were two people that we didn't really get to know as much as we wish we had. We we crossed paths a few times, but as it were, we never really got to know them in, in some of the ways that, that the rest of the community got to. And and that saddens us. And again, we just wanted to send our love and thoughts and and condolences to the families and to Bell. Yes. So with that, we're going to jump into the interview for everybody who is a premium subscriber and for everybody else we have a couple of we're going to keep them quick announcements because we know this got a little bit long up here (laughs) and we promise this time to try to keep them quick try to keep them quick yeah if you're not familiar with the premium subscription it's a way to skip these announcements up front and jump right into the interview for as little as a couple bucks a year you can sign up on our website normalizingnonmonogamy.com on the homepage. just scroll down a little bit the other thing you can do while you're on our website if you click on the podcast tab and you get to the show notes you'll see links to the conference that we're going to be at this weekend and just actually just tomorrow we're yes, going. we're going. We're driving to Southwest Love Fest in Tucson, Arizona. We're leaving the Bay Area, evacuating <laughs> to the Southwest. <laughs> For a weekend. <laughs> For a weekend. We have a, a workshop on uh, Friday morning that we're super excited about. We'd love for you to come and make it all the way to Tucson. We know that you can't necessarily do that, but there is a, still a virtual option available. Again, links are in the show notes to sign up. If you use the offer code EMMA, when you do sign up, you save 10% which is awesome. Yes. We would love for you to join us. And remember, the virtual option is an option. It is an option. That's why we call it the virtual option. <laughs> we or they? Or they, all, you, all of, all of you it. did, we did, everybody <laughs> did. <laughs> also, a quick reminder that we have a virtual meet and greet coming up at the end of the month, April 29th. That's a Saturday night. It'll be two hours of meeting and greeting, having fun. These are open to anyone. You just must be open-minded and respectful. And yeah, we'd love for you to come join us. To sign up, go to our website, normalizingnonmonogamy.com, and click on the events tab. And the other thing you can do while you're on our website, there's so much to do on there. <laughs> it's it's a one-stop shop for all your fun. There's a lot. You can sign up for our virtual community. Again, this is separate from the virtual meet and greets. This is a community that is exists all day, every day. But there are also 
uh, virtual Q&As that we do every month. There's a men's group. There's a women's group. And there are just tons of amazing people, almost 300 of us. And they're supporting each other all day, every day in a chat platform, sharing photos, sharing stories, and sharing love. So for just five bucks a month, you can check that out and be a part and find your community for the first time ever, perhaps. Yeah. That's a big statement and I'm standing by it. (laughs) Come check it out. Head over to our website, normalizingnonmonogamy.com. Click on the community tab. Again, there are also direct links in your podcast player. Show notes below. Last but not least, another thing you can do on our website is check out stecheck.com, our favorite way to get tested for STIs. It's the service that Finn and I use. And you can use the links on our website to get $10 off a 10 panel test, making it only $129. It is simple and discreet and easy, like simple, easy, same thing, but it's so not easy. Necessarily. <laughs> Uh, also using the links on our website does support the podcast and us. We appreciate it very, very much. And we highly encourage you to go check it out. Yeah, this is the service that Emma and I use and we've been using it for years. We love it and we wouldn't recommend it otherwise. So please check it out. And I think with that, we're going to jump in and talk to Alyssa. Yeah. And we are super excited for this and we'll see you on the other side. Let's go. Good morning, Alyssa. We're excited to talk today. Thank you so much for being here. It is an honor, a privilege, and a delight. <laughs> yeah, we're we're excited to chat and learn more about you today. So maybe just to get us rolling, do you mind introducing yourselves? Yourself. Uh, There's not why well, I see two of you because your cat's here. I don't know why I felt it. <laughs> okay. Well, this is Agora, and she's a rescue, and she's the cuddliest cat I've ever known. <laughs> but I'm Alyssa Gonzalez, immigrant to Canada writer, pet owner, might be able to hear some of the other aquarium pumps in the background. (laughs) Sorry about that, and or thank you, depending on how you feel about it. (laughs) Uh, See, have two partners right now I love to pieces. I live with my pets uh, and my thoughts and a lot of houseplants. (laughs) And it's it's been nice slowly putting together a life that feels good for me to inhabit and manages to avoid the long list of difficulties I've had in the distant and recent past. Uh, just showed me what doesn't work for me and what does in equal measure. And being able to claim all of that lately is it's it's nice. Uh, Getting to feel in control of my circumstances is beautiful. And that's one of the things being non-monogamous has facilitated for me. That's amazing. And I, I'm, I'm really excited to, to talk about all of that and, and maybe what some of that means. Because we, we actually don't know much about your story. And so we're excited to hear all about it. But backing all the way up, when maybe when did non-monogamy come into the picture? And maybe what role has that played in sort of living your authentic self? Uh. Absolutely. Let's see. How long ago was it now? 2012, 2013, something like that. Partner I was with that suggested we try non-monogamy after reading Sex at Dawn and probably a few other things uh, that deal with this topic. And at the time, my thought was, is is this a trap? is this going to be one of those really uncomfortable conversations where it is not actually an offer, but a way to feel out how I, th- what I think about all this. Uh, but, but it wasn't 
lots of other things were messed up about that relationship, but this one was honest. And I found that it, it worked really well for us. Me in particular can't uh, just, it, I found very quickly that it just, it dovetailed neatly with how I thought about relationships and what exactly I was, you know, ceding to another person when I you know, agree to be part of a relationship with them, like which behaviors are actually you know, a problem for a relationship and which ones aren't. And all the things I found confusing about being around people who aren't autistic when it comes to relationships and, a lot of things just suddenly made a lot more sense when the idea that this one person is supposed to own so many foci of my attention once I use the word relationship about them, like, once it didn't have to be like that anymore, it's just like the, the curtains lifted and there was an angelic chorus. It was a whole thing. And Did, did you two jump to write to, to dating other people separately right away? Did you date together at all? Uh, there was an idea that we'd be swingers for a while, but that just never happened. And it was indeed other people separately pretty quick. Though there was one person that wanted to date both of us and, and that was nice while it lasted. Yeah. What mm-hmm. what were some of the, the challenges that came up for you, Alyssa, as uh, sort of pre before the, the curtains lifted in the chorus <laughs> sang for you? I mean, I, so, so before my, that partner and I agreed to, it become non-monogamous. Well, yeah, and it sounded like it sounded mm-hmm. like you had sort of had a history of various challenges that that mm-hmm. kept coming up for you in relationship. There's a there's an, a part of me is deep instinct that that I'm not sure I could fight even if I wanted to that says that the relationship is specifically between me and the person I'm in a relationship with, and therefore the other people I am connected to in absolutely any capacity are simply not relevant unless that connection is specifically harming some other person. So, so the idea that, you know, who I spend my time looking at when my partner isn't around, whether I do anything about that or not is completely irrelevant. Mm-hmm. I, I, it should not be a problem if I mention that I happen to see someone else who was attractive or something like that should not be a problem who I spend my time with outside of the time I spend with my partner and so on. And no one I dated prior to becoming non-monogamous saw it that way. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They were infuriated if I ever mentioned that my eyes were on some other attractive person and that I was capable of noticing how attractive or not they were, they, they would immediately become very possessive. If I you know spent time around my close female friend that I had an on again, off again, crush about uh, that I, I was always in the off position while I was with someone else. Mm-hmm. There was this sense that they should be allowed to have this, vast latitude on who else I was allowed to spend time with when I wasn't with them. And the idea that they should have any control whatsoever over what I do when I'm not specifically in their company was both unintuitive and insulting as far as I was concerned. Mm-hmm. But they did not see it that way. The monogamous norms of our society do not see it that way. They think entering into a relationship with someone is this, you know, grand transformation of one's entire social environment. And I just never subscribes to that. 
there was a time when it seemed like the price of not being constantly lonely was agreeing to all sorts of things I did not want to agree to. And so there was much that I accepted that I don't think I ever will again. But once someone acknowledged that, like, no, what I do with other people is completely orthogonal to what I do with you, how I feel about other people isn't a whole separate thing from how I feel about you, whether I'm close to someone else has no bearing whatsoever on whether I'm close to you. Like that felt natural. And once we, we could ascend to that, like it's like other people don't do this. What? <laughs> this is just obviously better in every conceivable way than, than all the nonsense the monogamists put me through up to this point. Like what, what what are the rest of y'all doing? <laughs> I love that. I love that. And I think, right, I mean, we mm-hmm. could draw a parallel to cats, right? You get another cat, you're not mm-hmm. like, old cat, I, I don't like you anymore, Agora. I just got a new cat, so I just, <laughs> I all of a sudden love my cat less. Like, that's not mm-hmm. how, that's not how love necessarily works. And exactly. so, I love that. Like it's, it's how time works, unfortunately. So, there's, there is a yeah. dimension where, that adding commitments reduces the time hypothetically available for other commitments. But as a person with a lot of hobbies, uh, the time I can devote to other people was always limited anyway. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. so the related idea that getting a partner is supposed to utterly consume the rest of a person's life is also something that never made sense to me. Yeah. 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 Whether yeah. it's other people mm-hmm. or just activities, right? That, that mm-hmm. your, your time is your time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. As you opened up that relationship, mm-hmm. how how did it go? You said it, it like it was a it worked really well, but how how did those well it worked really about? well for her, right? How did those early <laughs> days go? Well, we both put ourselves out there and found other people to bring home or not. I established several the relationships. One of them is still going and largely its original shape. Another one remains one of my closest friends, even though we're not dating anymore. Um, my partner at the time also found people. I no longer know if she's connected to any of them because that relationship turned out to have a lot of problems that were best solved by me no longer having any contact with her. There was a deep sense that she was envious that it seemed easier for me to get attention from the outside than it was for her. Mm-hmm. And yeah. it was all also tied into feelings she'll never admit to about uh, how much my life got better once I recognized my gender and began living it honestly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And maybe that's like, I'd love to talk about that a bit more. What, mm-hmm. I mean, you've, you've kind of alluded or you, you, you kind mm-hmm. of stated very clearly up front that the last few years have been sort of transformative for you in terms of just living who you are. And this seems like it was a very big piece of that. Uh, Oh, yes. Figured out I was an atheist as a child. Figured out I did not want to be a medical doctor. Sorry, Mom, but around (laughs) the same time. Uh, Figured out I did not want to live in the United States as a teenager, probably, and finally admitted that to myself and the rest of the world once I was up here for graduate school. Uh, Figured out I was autistic in that same awful relationship figured out I was a woman and finally admitted all sorts of things that are very obvious in hindsight a little while later and 
each one of these steps made another big, big piece of my life make a lot more sense and relieved a whole mass of lingering stress from things not making sense in my life. And each one of these steps toward embodying the person that I needed to be just, it felt good and it made life just feel so much freer and accepting being non-monogamous was another big event like that where instead of changing how I saw myself and what being myself even meant, it affected how most of my relationships work for the better. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Did the, did Mm -hmm. realizing that you were a woman, did that start Mm -hmm. to, how, how did that impact your relationships from that point forward? Uh, pretty dramatically. The population of men interested in dating a woman who looks like me is significantly larger than the population of women interested in dating a woman who looks like me, tragically. (laughs) So it quite changed the character of my dating pool. Yeah. Helpfully, being non monogamous is pretty common among trans women who are interested in women, it turns out. So, So the balance is worked out reasonably well in the end. It made my relationships make more sense because the women who dated me weren't looking for a girlfriend. And that's very often what I felt like even before I knew why. And so a lot of my relationships, they were confused and had problems that neither of us knew how to articulate because I wasn't the person that they were expecting. Yeah. It's almost almost like they had, they had taken this energy from you, right? Like in the relationship Mm -hmm. and it was, Mm -hmm. it was unclear to both of you. What was like, there was something that was unknown there and uncovered until you figured it out. Right. Exactly. Being a trans woman who doesn't know it yet is a really strange experience for everyone involved because very often people can just sort of tell they start instinctively treating this person, you know, the way they treat other women. And then they get confused about that because they don't think that's what you are because you don't think that's what you are. And everyone's just like, this feels okay, but it's not supposed to what's going on. And it's it's a really strange experience for everyone involved that stops being strange. Once you figure out what's what, what that, what is actually happening and start living that truth properly. Wow. Yeah. And I imagine too, Mm -hmm. right. Because we have so many, not not even just personal sort of biases, mm-hmm. but the societal ones that go along with yeah. that, that 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 then drive you even further down maybe the path that it just sort of tries to normalize everybody into one mm-hmm. box. And if that's not if that's not your box, it's a really hard place to be. Exactly. One of the things that kept me from figuring myself out was I had to learn deep into my adulthood that it's quite ordinary for a trans woman to not be interested in men. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I was like, Oh, but that then, but then, Oh, 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 I need to talk to someone. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's, that's a whole list of amazing changes that are not like any one of those by itself uh-huh. is 
life-changing, transformative, and you've you've stacked and compounded three or four of them on top of one another. Oh, oh yeah. I, I still remember the look on a certain professor's face when when she realized after putting a whole bunch of separate conversations together, it's like, wait a minute, you are dealing with immigration and being alienated from your parents uh, to the point of potentially being in financial peril and a potentially violent stalker and some housing difficulty all in the same year. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. How did you yeah. graduate? <laughs> and, it, and it turns out that uh, I'm that some kind of superhuman. So, so, so that works out. <laughs> I just had a quick question on mm-hmm. the, you had said before in a minute, a second ago about, you know, thinking this like, it sounds to me like you felt pressure mm-hmm. to be attracted to men. It was, it was more like, no, I, I can't possibly be a trans woman. I'm not attracted to men. That's just, just part of the package. Right. Right. Like one so of the things the that narrative. makes a person. Exactly. Yeah. And it was, it was just one of the, the big planks in the edifice of my denial at the time. And, and once that was removed, the, the rest of them had a lot more trouble standing up. <laughs> Yeah. 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 Well, and it, and it sounds like along, along with that, and you, you just kind mm-hmm. of listed the, the things that your professor pointed out, but mm-hmm. that, the, these challenges aren't just, oh, this is a little uncomfortable. I feel a little off in who I am, mm-hmm. but that they, that they ripple through every aspect of your life in almost a debilitating way. Oh, yeah. I suspect a less resilient person would not have emerged from the trials I have endured quite the way I have. Uh, but yeah, it was a lot and everything connects to everything else. And, and that one of the perks of everything connecting to everything else is that each piece that one does figure out suddenly makes all the other ones a little easier to recognize mm-hmm. because this, once you know what one of the pieces is, then the parts where it was intersecting with all the others become windows into what's going on there. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I have, in many ways, I have lived a charmed life. I've made it to being a, a d- doctorate holder and a homeowner without any debt. But in other ways, I've had a lot of difficulties to resolve. And it's it's nice to emerge on the other side of that with a much clearer vision of who I'm supposed to be and what my life is supposed to look like. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. And who I should be smooching the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. I say it's just, it's powerful. It's that you, mm-hmm. it, what you just said, you recognize your, uh, you know, privileges in some ways and mm-hmm. also your challenges and that your life can be made of both, but it doesn't take those challenges and make them any easier at all. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's not difficult for me to imagine someone that was dealing with all my challenges and didn't have the boatload of perks on the other side, but would have ended a lot more tragically than I did. But and it doesn't mean that you no, know, I didn't have difficulties to deal with. And yeah. I think that's what makes being a writer as natural for me as it is that I've had a lot to process over the years and Writing's been a natural fit for that, and it's also meant that there was a lot for me to write about. <laughs> right. Well, yeah. and, and that kind of brings up, I was going to kind of ask, mm-hmm. what 
What were some of the tools you used to persevere through that? For maybe for somebody listening who's who's mm-hmm. trans, who's autistic, mm-hmm. who who's figuring out all of these pieces about themselves. Maybe and and sort of late in life, as you said, right? This wasn't uh, a realization in your teens. Uh, Well, the internet is a wonderland of information, and it is also an absolute minefield of some of the worst human beings on the planet. And sometimes they live in the same Reddit fora, and you just have to figure out how you're going to deal with that. It helps to have a collection of good friends that can help curate one's experience such that one is only ever interacting with Reddit and Tumblr via screenshots posted on Facebook. (laughs) (laughs) You get the filtered version. Exactly. Exactly. Thousand and one little curators. It's pretty great. Don't have to wade into those morasses yourself. Uh, Writing is an excellent tool because it has a backspace button and talking to people doesn't we're still, yeah. we're still work, working on that for people. Uh, so you get to articulate things and not worry that you're going to say something that is going to passionately offend someone in some internet forum where it's recorded forever. And one of the uh, somewhat surreal experiences one can have as a non-monogamous person is being in one relationship that is really not working and another one that is amazing. Mm-hmm. sometimes multiple that are amazing mm-hmm. and one that is just really not working and being able to have those things side by side can make it easier to figure out which one is not working mm-hmm. out there somewhere. Someone is desperately taking this out of context as some equivalent to, you know, lining up your side person before you leave the other one or whatever. But Yeah. It doesn't really count as that when they know about each other and sometimes all attend the same dinner parties. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, so they, they're aware of each other. They've met each other. And mm-hmm. I like what you said. They can be It can be a highlight for you in, in all of those relationships, which ones work and which ones don't work. Like a lot exactly. easier when you have something to compare them to. Exactly. When you're not trying to reach back into a past that you're only remembering in pieces and probably under rose-colored glasses while you're at it. But no, they're right there. You can just straight up compare experiences that happened in the past 10 or 15 hours between the two people. Mm -hmm. You can have a look at what one relationship demands and expects versus the other and figure out like no it's it's pretty empirically obvious at this point that things do not have to be the way they are in that one that isn't working yeah. right well but then you then you're faced with the what do i do about it and how exactly how how do you handle that part that to me i would just say for mm-hmm. me that is the that's the crux because right you can look at it all day long and go well this this one feels better than this one but then what do i do about it cuz then you've got to actually act on that Yeah, and as someone who has a habit of quietly processing things without people even realizing what's going on right out until I make a decision and then having them all say, wait a minute, slow down, you have to process. (laughs) Like, no, no, we're past that now. You just weren't invited. (laughs) I I did that. I did that. (laughs) You weren't invited. (laughs) I love that. Well, and Alyssa, I might might take this opportunity to talk a little bit about, Mm -hmm. you've mentioned autism a few times, and I I think that maybe these two are kind of interlaced. And I'm curious, what 
what and how autism kind of shows up for you? Because this is we know this is a spectrum, mm-hmm. right? And 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 it's yeah. a little bit different for everybody. And what is maybe what does that look like for you? And how how did you come to realize it? And it was a pretty slow process. And I recognized from pretty much the moment of my first awakening into self-awareness as a sentient being that I was different from most of the people around me. But having a name for that was a complicated process. Mm-hmm. I did not get bad enough grades for people to put my struggles especially seriously when I was younger. So I got shunted into a variety of euphemisms that I think people are recognizing are all words for autistic now, like gifted. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, twice exceptional is another fun one. I have not heard twice exceptional. Uh, that, that, that comes up in educational context when someone is like way above grade level in one field, but like way below in another, you know, stuff like that. I see. I see. And so I'd spent years just knowing I was different and amassing a collection of nerdy friends and being weird and unsel- not terribly self-conscious about it and other or very self-conscious about it, depending on how the world was trying to make me feel. Uh, after a while, I started to notice that all my friends were the same kind of weird. And I was looking for company that had certain kinds of weirdness because anyone else seemed to regard me as just not someone they wanted to be around long-term, not someone they could even they understand how they operated. Mm-hmm. Uh, I used to specifically look for shy girls. The, 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 the header that I had in my brain for what kind of person I wanted to spend time around because that was the language I had access to at the time for what I was actually looking for. Mm-hmm. Uh, as an adult, some people around me were like, no, I, I think you need to give this some serious thought here because th- there's, there's a name for the kind of weird that you are and I think you would benefit from resources named accordingly and i started reading more about it i'm like whoa wait a minute you mean i can stop reading the page about sky's a typal personality disorder over and over again there's a much better word for what's going on in my head (laughs) okay this this makes a lot of sense i do that i do that too i I don't i don't do that but but i do that Um, and suddenly just a lot of things about myself made so much more sense and having that word to be in the search terms for what Facebook groups I would spend time around and what blogs I would read. It it made finding company that operated on the same mental wavelength, so to speak, a lot easier. And it dovetailed very nicely into my non-monogamous experience because a lot of the things that in my head are just part and parcel of being autistic are what make all the social norms surrounding monogamy just fundamentally not make sense to me. Yeah. Yeah. They're the things that make being non-monogamous utterly intuitive at this point, such that it, it completely baffles me. I have to have a whole separate thing in my head of the stuff the neurotypicals do that just does not make sense, but is what they do. And I have to be able to recognize it to function in a world where they made all the rules and basically everything about monogamy is in that box, along with you got to make eye contact when you talk to someone. And if you just say exactly what you mean, they're going to digest it into a slurry of you know politeness and relationship markers that aren't there anyway. So you got to put those in. 
Yeah, I love that. Would you, would you be open mm-hmm. to sharing a few more of the? I think this, uh, the as you call it, the dovetail. This this mm-hmm. m- merging of non monogamy and neurodiversity mm-hmm. is one that that we know mm-hmm. comes up often and mm-hmm. is very common to find people who are non monogamous to also have some type of neurodivergence in in some mm-hmm. way. And I think hearing a little bit more from you about. And, and clearly you're so well versed on <laughs> the way that your own autism fits into <laughs> that puzzle. I would, I would just love to hear more about that if you're I, open to it. I am so glad you asked. <laughs> <laughs> it's almost like you wrote a book on it or something. Yeah. <laughs> How can you imagine? <laughs> so uh, the, the top of that list is being neurodivergent means that normalcy is just not something that works for us. In general, it is a collection of alien rules and things that we often just psychologically do not have access to. Um, stuff that doesn't make sense even when it's explained. Stuff the neurotypicals feel insulted if you try if you try to get them to explain it. If you question them about it and tell them, but this doesn't fit with this. No, they get they don't not like that. <laughs> And one of the results of this is that as we're trying to find a way of existing that works for us, we naturally gravitate to all sorts of things that register to the outside as unusual. Strange gravitates to strange in my experience. And as a result is that all sorts of unconventional lifestyles and hobbies and ways of doing things just come with the neurodivergent package, especially for autistic and ADHD folks, but I think for the grand tapestry of neurodiversity more generally. And, and once you, once you're embracing being unconventional, because that's what finally makes sense in this awful nonsensical world, then not being monogamous is just one of the ways of being unconventional that a person can embrace. But on top of that, I, when the rules of something make as little sense as the whole social construct of monogamy does, it's very easy for us to find this instead. And one result is that uh, there's a running joke that if the, the Euler diagram of people that go to Ren fairs and non-monogamous people is a circle. (laughs) (laughs) All sorts of things where we all end up identifying with a lot of the same and unconventional things. And it creates some flattering, some not stereotypes about what kind of people go in either category. But once we get in there, you realize like, wait a minute, this is a lifestyle that actively benefits from people that speak in a relatively straightforward and clear manner and are interested in carefully laying out what their expectations are for each other and are used to recognizing as uh, problems as the results of people failing to communicate clearly to each other and who don't necessarily react to ordinary situations the way other people do and so are much more willing to interrogate what's going on in there just to figure themselves out let alone each other like there are ways in which being uh, not neurotypical is actively beneficial to a non-monogamous life to the point where i'm convinced we are better at it than the neurotypicals are yeah i think there's something Mm -hmm. in there of Mm -hmm. you don't you don't take anything for granted, mm-hmm. right? You don't, you mm-hmm. don't make assumptions. You, 
you yeah. spell it out every single time or most of the time, right? And, mm-hmm. and it's so all of the stuff that we go into autopilot on, all of the, mm-hmm. the habitual stuff that we do in relationships, that that largely gets erased. And now you're back to like the brass tacks of it. We have to, we have to talk about this. We don't get to just assume, oh, you went on a date. Well, dates mean this. It's no, I'm going on a date. What does a date mean to us in our relationship? Let's talk about that. Maybe let's talk about that for three hours. Even, exactly. Right? And yeah. Uh, something that non-monogamy and neurodiversity have in common is that heuristics built in the normal world just become less and less possible to apply. That a lot of autistic people in particular that just have to build elaborate schema to just exist in a world where we didn't get to decide how things work. And that that means that great big patterns of social norms that govern situations are largely opaque to a lot of us. And even when they're not, we're approaching it with large parts of the space being a black box. You only really understand based on how they interact with the parts we do understand and in a world that treats relationships like that in a monogamous context, you're already having to discard basically every heuristic about relationships to make non-monogamy a thing at all. So having to rebuild the whole system, it's, we were already doing that if we were neurodivergent. So like, might as well do it in a way that actually works for us. Yeah, I yeah. love that. And then mm-hmm. you get to basically take mm-hmm. every relationship. Is And this is sort of full circle to what you said mm-hmm. at the beginning is yeah. you get to take every relationship and say, what is this relationship? And you get mm-hmm. to you get to apply your own set of rules and your own lenses and your own everything to basically sculpt it into one that works for you mm-hmm. and your partner and whatever other partner comes into it, you you all get to co-create that. Exactly. And that can be tremendously healing after a very difficult life. One of the realities of being neurodivergent is that I think we're a good three generations out before our society can reliably produce a non-traumatized neurodivergent person. Yeah. Uh, so part and parcel of being neurodivergent at this point is uh, experiencing a lot of awful stuff at the hands of either mainstream society or our parents or our teachers or some other subset thereof. Yeah. And a lot of the diagnostic criteria in the books fundamentally assume that anyone who's getting a diagnosis of certain kinds has been through some shit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and to the point where I, I think once we can reliably produce, you know, ADHD people who aren't traumatized by the school system and autistic people who aren't traumatized by basically every interaction with anyone who isn't autistic, that the criteria are going to look very different because they won't rely on all the things that we do and ways that we are when we've been treated badly for extended periods of time. And one of the perks of non-monogamy for a person who's been through a lot of difficulties is that it releases a lot of expectations like monogamous norms often assume that one specific person is going to be the utter center of one's entire social life. That is a lot to put on the partner of a traumatized person. That is a lot to put on a traumatized person being a partner to anyone. We are often not equipped to quite rise to that challenge. And even if we are, it's a lot to expect of another person. 
getting to derive social support from a wider network of people who are allowed access to the intimate center of one's emotional being is wonderful. Being able to cultivate a wider selection of attachments and heal one's ability to depend on other people who have often proven unreliable in the past is is healing. Being released from the idea that you've wronged the people around you if you pursue intimacy in ways they don't like, like that is tremendously healing. And there's there's a whole other book by the, a different author published by the same publisher that published mine that deals with this kind of thing in great detail called Polysecure. Mm-hmm. And I recommend anyone who found that previous paragraph relatable you know, acquire a copy. <laughs> yeah, yes. fantastic. It's a fantastic mm-hmm. book. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And everything you said makes so much sense too. Mm-hmm. I, and I'm... I'm just excited for mm-hmm. more and more work to be putting out there about this. Like mm-hmm. I appreciate all of the, all of the research and writing that you've done. And I guess I'm curious mm-hmm. too, when did the idea for the book come to you and, and what was that process like? I've had thoughts of putting some of these things on my blog for some time, but, uh, when the Thornapple Press approached me with this topic, I was like, oh, I was born for this. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. <laughs> and just collected my various thoughts and put them together in this book. If there is an, another edition, I think there are more thoughts I will put in there. The blind spots I had that I mean this book is not as good as I think it will be if there's another edition, but it, it contains so many things that came to me while I was processing past relationships and current ones and how different they feel and just how utterly bizarre it was growing up as an autistic, but didn't know it yet. You know, teenager in Miami of you know, Cuban descent and realizing that they, the sixth Cuban American love language is bombastic displays of jealousy at literally anyone else who would dare take up space in your partner's life. Like the telenovela has got it from somewhere. Most of them are Mexican and not Cuban, but, but they got the pattern from somewhere. And it's just, that was something I could never provide the people I dated when I was in Miami. And not just because I was also a trans woman who didn't know it yet dating straight women. (laughs) (laughs) But it's just absolutely baffling to me that they they thought that was an okay thing to subject me to or expect from me because it was just not how I operated. My general attitude was I'm currently getting what I want from this relationship. Why would I be hostile toward you in any way? (laughs) Right. Well, and it sounds, it sounds like for you, those, those norms of jealousy, not only did, Mm -hmm. did you not really register them in the sense that like, when your partner was maybe feeling it, when you're like, well, I don't know. I don't understand why you're feeling this. It sounds like you Mm -hmm. also didn't necessarily feel that if your partner was having interactions that, that maybe in an otherwise relationship Mm -hmm. would, would spur jealousy to a different partner. Uh, One of the key parts of this conversation is that jealousy and envy are two different things. Mm -hmm. And too many people use those words interchangeably or do what I was taught as a young person and I was told that envy was some bigger, worse version of jealousy. And like, no, if anything, it's the other way around. What are you, what are you 
<laughs> what are you people on about? Envy is just you wishing you had what someone else had, but jealousy, that is tied intimately with the idea that the other person having something means you are going to lose it. Yeah. And that was the key to why my experience of it was so different from anyone I dated when I was young. Because as long as I was getting what I wanted from a relationship, uh, as long as it did not seem like their connection to someone else would put that in jeopardy, I just did not care what else they were up to. I think maybe they could do something that conflicted with my values in some way, but that's not a jealousy conversation. That's something else entirely. Mm-hmm. But for them, they existed in this constant state of utter terror that I was going to head somewhere else. And mm-hmm. thus it was incumbent upon them as far as they were concerned to make sure that didn't happen. Like every person they dated was some wild animal. They had to keep corrals or else it would uh, jump the fence or dig a hole under it or whatever. But that is just never how I saw the people I dated. Like it's... If they wanted to leave, they would leave, and that was that. Like, even when I was at my most lonely, and therefore I'm most inclined to both accept things I shouldn't have from partners and do things I didn't want to to keep them, like, the idea that other people were a threat to that, just if they could peel that person away from me, they might as well go on ahead and do it. Like, yeah. Probably better for both of us if they did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, and, and you know, mm-hmm. hearkening back to to when you reference polysecure, right? One of the, the conversations, I think, in the start of part two about that book is around you, you have a container for a relationship, mm-hmm. and that container is often used as a false sense of security. Mm-hmm. And, and I think what you sort of just said in, in a few more words is you can't, you can't make somebody stay who wants to go. And you can't make yeah. somebody go really who wants to stay. I mean, yes, you, you can leave them, but right. Mm-hmm. Somebody's not going to leave if they don't want to. And somebody's mm-hmm. not going to stay if they want to leave. And so you can create whatever relationship structure mm-hmm. you want. But at the end of the day, right, you going on dates with somebody else doesn't mean you want to leave that relationship just exactly. because you went on a date. Right. Mm-hmm. If there's a, if you're going to leave the relationship, it's probably going to be for reasons other than you went on a date with somebody or you mm-hmm. had another relationship with them. Exactly. Something I've noticed a lot, especially talking to people who get very angry when you talk to poly- about polyamory in public, is that there's this idea a lot of people have that if they feel deep undesirable on some personal level, they start heaping restrictions on whoever would date them or is currently dating them. And there's this... that partly subconscious, partly not idea that if the partner accedes to all of this, that is them stating that they find you desirable. You have created a handicap for the relationship, so to speak. And if they continue to accept that, it means they want to be there. And conversely, if they stop accepting that, that's a sign that maybe they don't want to be with you specifically as a separate question from whether they think this restriction is okay. And so, uh, piling all these rules on becomes a way for the insecure person to assure themselves that they're actually wanted because they're terrified of what would happen if they didn't have those restrictions would it's a very strange mindset to me and 
one that I think does not stand up to a whole lot of rational scrutiny, but it's not really about rationality. It's about someone soothing themselves of something that it's not really up to the other person to soothe. It's There's a lot of inner work that has to be done if the path that I just described sounds appealing to a person. And people can make that work in a BDSM context, I find, but as a the ordinary relationship dynamic, like asking someone to abide by a heap of restrictions because you know as long as they're still doing that, it means they still want you enough to put up with your shit. Like that that's that's not healthy. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 And and I think too in there was mm-hmm. Yeah, the the idea that you, you said in there, right, that it's mm-hmm. it doesn't make a whole lot of logical sense. But at mm-hmm. the same time, it feels good to some people, right? It it's mm-hmm. a it's an emotional thing that comes out for them. And so you can look at all the rules and say logically, like this does not create any more security, right? You can read that mm-hmm. passage in Polysecure 500 times, mm-hmm. and at the same time, it can still feel really good to your nervous system and to your everything to mm-hmm. put those rules and to put that structure in place. Totally. Exactly. When someone is feeling powerless, asserting power is a natural reflex. And and there, now you don't need to spend time on like, any discourse group on a social network ever again. <laughs> <laughs> you just summed it all up in one sentence. Well, it's just, you point into like inner work. And there's like so much mm-hmm. inner work that needs to be done. And I think... Mm-hmm. Uh, I, we're all constantly growing as humans and changing over time. And that's part of the, uh, part of the process, right. Of learning these things and, and discovering these things and then reflecting and working on, on them mm-hmm. in yourself, because we all come to this world with our own, like our upbringing, our parents, cultures, like everything affects who we are. Right. As we, mm-hmm. I mean, we internally are ourselves, but we're influenced by all of these outside factors. And as you, as you learn and grow and, you know, throughout your life, those, a lot of, you change, you change. And so, um, I don't know if I had a really specific point with all of that, other than just some ramblings of like, it's, Mm -hmm. I love this. I just love this conversation and appreciate, Mm -hmm. appreciate everything that you shared. Mm -hmm. Um, it's it's been a delight sharing all of this <laughs> and one thing we could all do with more is being able to look at our world and at ourselves in clear-eyed introspective detail and figure out why things are the way they are and why we are the way we are and whether that's how we want to be and what we're going to do about it if it's not and what that means for how we're connected to other people and that's true regardless of neurotype, regardless of trauma history, regardless of what you had for breakfast this morning. It's it's something that just makes everything better. And the only downside it has is that sometimes it means you're not going to put up with stuff that you were putting up with before, and that can get expensive. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, expensive and difficult at times, but it, it's, mm-hmm. it, yeah. I think, too, in there, there's a piece mm-hmm. that I wanted to maybe ask about, because there's mm-hmm. two, kind of two things marbling around in my head and one of them is around i think it's all sort of around the idea of a, of an echo chamber and the mm-hmm. sometimes the the thing that comes up when somebody says well i'm interested in opening my relationship in the or the relationship mm-hmm. it's 
I think it's tied to jealousy, but it's the idea that, well, what if you find somebody better? And I think you, you touched on this a little bit when you said like, well, I had this partner, I had two partners, one that we would say is a healthy partnership and one that Mm -hmm. was not. And when I was in both of those simultaneously, Mm -hmm. it really highlights the good and the bad of, of each versus if you were doing those each in a, in a vacuum, you can maybe Mm -hmm. lose some of that. And I think, I don't know. This is a long question, and I get that. It was really just around the idea of non-monogamy giving you the opportunity to to compare and Mm -hmm. to give you the frame of reference for what feels good and what doesn't, but also sort of that idea of, well, what if you do find somebody better than me? And and I think that is a common argument that, like, well, I'm afraid they're just going to find a better partner for themselves than I am. I mean, I literally did, and I still stayed with that other person for years. So, <laughs> I mean, the, the the center of the, the entire point of being non-monogamous is that you don't have to end the previous relationship if you find someone else, even if you find someone who's you know, a straight-up deity. Well, the other person feels like you know the to three layers of worms deep in the muck by comparison. You're not obligated to let them. To, to send them on their way when you find the other person. That's the point. Thank you. So I, I don't think most people who have this question would find that thought terribly reassuring, but that ended up being the, the practical rub of it all while I was living that very experience. But, but in between, I'm just like, and if I did, would you deny me that? <laughs> like, Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Why? Why would mm-hmm. I? Right, let's say you do find somebody, and it, and I think that your point exactly though was, mm-hmm. I did find somebody quote unquote better, and not better, mm-hmm. but better for you, right? And I think that's mm-hmm. an important thing. It's one person's better is not necessarily somebody else's better, but maybe a better fit for you. And that exactly. didn't mean you just kicked that first person to the curb and were like, "Well, hey, look, I upgraded. You're out." I don't, I didn't have to, I, I still love you for you in these ways. Mm -hmm. And at a certain point, if we're not compatible, then we don't continue doing this, but it's not, it's not just because somebody just walked into my life and I have to just push you out. It's, it's, Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. In my head, relationships are pretty strongly compartmentalized. And the question in my head is always, am I getting what I want out of this relationship? And whether I have another relationship going on or not doesn't change the answers to that question very much. In the end, this insecurity comes down to the person asking this question worried that the other one is asking to open up the relationship so they don't have to be secretive about looking for a replacement, just about the fact that that's what they're doing. Mm -hmm. And uh, owning up to that being what they're worried about can be a difficult thing for both parties. But in the end, that's fundamentally what it is. Yeah. I don't have a very good answer for that. Other than the fact that at least for me, different relationships are different relationships. I know how many I have time for. I know what I like to do with them. But each one works for me or doesn't on its own merits. It's not something that the package deal changes too dramatically. Yeah. 
hypothetically, I could get into one that shows me that something was wrong with the previous one, but that doesn't mean the something wasn't wrong with the previous one before. It's just me noticing. And if the other person's pitch is that, but you might notice that there's something wrong with our relationship, it's like, well, is there? Is there something you wanted to tell me? Yeah. <laughs> well, and yeah. maybe that's better to figure out now than mm-hmm. 20 years from now. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, I, and, and exactly mm-hmm. what you said was there was a, mm-hmm. a thought coming to mind of, Mm-hmm. What what may happen is when you said, well, as long as I'm getting what I want out of this relationship, then this relationship mm-hmm. continues, right? There is the chance that a new relationship introduces something new to you or something mm-hmm. to you that changes your standard, that that raises the bar. Yeah. And yeah, maybe that first relationship is no longer meeting your standard of what a happy, healthy relationship mm-hmm. is. Mm-hmm. But you don't you don't have to say, well, mm-hmm. hey, look, we started with the bar down here. And the mm-hmm. bar always has to stay down here, right? You get to yeah. live your life and raise your standards, raise your expectations of the people in your life as you move through it. You don't have to say, well, hey, we Emma and I met in seventh grade. I have expectations mm-hmm. of her as a partner that I would not of a seventh grader, right? Like mm-hmm. we, we are not the same people that we were when we met each other. Exactly. The conversation about cooties is totally different now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I've, I've also want along similar lines, I want to clarify. I've repeatedly used language about whether a relationship is fulfilling my needs. Like it should go without saying that the relationship not fulfilling the other person is also a solid reason for, to end it. I've rhetorically assumed that if it's not fulfilling the other person, that the other person will handle that. But if you notice that and propose ending it, more power to you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which is a tricky mm-hmm. one to do, right? Then you're mm-hmm. ascribing, like, I can see mm-hmm. this whole, uh, it's not me, it's, or it's not you, it's me type mentality, mm-hmm. but I I can understand what you're saying. Yeah. Well, it gets into trusting. Mm-hmm. I mean, trusting your partner that they're like, mm-hmm. that they're staying in the relationship and it works for them. And if it wouldn't, they would get out. Like you have exactly. to trust your partner in that way. Yeah. And among the challenges of non-monogamy is it's a, an additional sphere of relationship that could cause a person to grow and change. And maybe they were someone that worked with a relationship they had before and are no longer because of experiences they had. That happens too. And I think it's perfectly okay for people to grow apart and not work with each other anymore without it being a whole hostile blow up thing. And one of my dearest friends is someone I was dating and am no longer dating. And like, this is fine and good and not something that the monogamist world really has a script for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I know for a long time it was routine for me to completely sever contact with my exes because they, the relationships tended to end so explosively that neither of us wanted anything to do with each other anymore. And it's a relatively recent change of pace. The queerer I've become that my relationships don't usually end like that anymore. Mm-hmm. It's, it's rather nice. <laughs> uh, but I, this, this should all be okay. I, we should not you know, want to freeze our partners in amber to make sure they don't grow in ways that lead them to move apart from us. Facilitating yeah. our development as people this should be one of our foremost goals as people who are intimately involved with each other, even if that means we become less intimate later. Yeah. Yes, that's beautifully said. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. I, I have a few more questions, but hmm. 
but I thought maybe we could have you pitch your book a little bit and talk about what what is the name of the book. I know we talked about it in the intro that we haven't recorded mm-hmm. yet, but the you know the name of the book. You talked a little bit about how the book came to be, but tell us a little mm-hmm. bit about the book and maybe your research, mm-hmm. and then we have a couple other questions. Uh, sure thing. So my book is Non-Monogamy and Neurodiversity, a More Than Two Essentials Guide. It's part of a series of More Than Two Essentials Guides published by Thornapple Press, which is now the sole owner of More Than Two as a brand. Each of the books in this series is a sort of addendum to the much larger discussion of polyamory that takes place within the seminal tome, More Than Two. And so it's not really meant to exist as a standalone reference about polyamory. But this book deals with the ways that it intersects with being neurodivergent, the experiences and attributes that neurodivergent people have that can make non-monogamy an especially good fit, all the ways that monogamous social norms that can treat us badly, like the things that we bring to the non-monogamous table that can make us a solid fit for this lifestyle and can make this lifestyle a great fit for us. But also some of the challenges particular to our experience that we can face but in a non-monogamous setting. An example, like a lot of us struggle with something called rejection-sensitive dysphoria, where the receiving even mild criticism can sort of unleash an awful spiral of self-destructive thinking that feels like a wholesale referendum on our value as human beings. And unaddressed, that's a really difficult thing for both the person experiencing it and everyone around them to endure. It is really important for the people who have this as a thing that happens to them to know that this happens and have tools for dealing with it because it can be really destructive for both relationships and professional life in general. And in an environment where once you're in a relationship, you're not necessarily done flirting with other people, you're going to experience rejection a lot more often. In an environment where being in a relationship with someone doesn't mean they're going to necessarily stop pursuing connections with other people, it can be easier to feel slighted or rejected or worried that that what you already have is in jeopardy. And uh, dealing with this uh, enormous explosion of emotions every time anything negative happens is not easy. So... It is important to have tools for that. I put a few of them in here. This isn't really a, a therapeutic or psychological manual. That's that's not my expertise. I, I did do a lot of reading to put this together, but I didn't want to venture into recommendations that exceeded what I'm actually trained to give people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so it's mostly a, these are things you can look at in more detailed references or discuss with your therapist kind of uh, treatment. But like. It's, it was important for me to acknowledge that the combination of being non-monogamous and neurodivergent isn't always sunshine and roses, and there are many challenges, some of which I hope to address if this book gets a second edition in a few years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and because in between all that, though, the, the end result is it's still much more natural to co-construct the rules that govern your relationships and not restrict certain levels of intimacy to one specific person who has to be the center of your whole emotional life. Um, it's 
it is a match made in the depths of our, our psychological patterns. And I think more people should get to experience that. So I put this together to alert people that this is a possibility for us that tends to work really well. And not just because that'll probably widen my dating pool. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you know, I yeah. think writing a book is a, is a great alternative to Tinder. Um, so I give you a ton of credit. <laughs> yes. Thank, thank you for all of the work that you did for the book. Uh-huh. And, and we're excited to yeah promote it and get it out there. Uh, yeah. I'm delighted. I'm, I'm glad I could write this book. I'm glad I could talk to you all about it. And I'm glad I could have this lovely conversation with you both. This was a lot of fun. Yeah. I, if, if you're good with one more question, you, you actually miraculously set me up perfectly for it. And the question was around dating and what dating mm-hmm. looks like for you, how dating goes for you as putting together all of the pieces that you bring to the table how, as how you. does, yeah, as you, as Alyssa, how does that go for you? And what is, what does that look like? Uh, I mean, it, it's been a bit since I've actively sought to add someone to my polycule. Like mm-hmm. I'm trying to write another book and between that and taking care of the menagerie of pets that your <laughs> listeners absolutely cannot see and all the other stuff I have going on. I, I am taking the opportunity of the end of one of my relationships to just uh, handle the rest of my life with a bit more attention. Which is a, uh, which is a solid uh-huh. strategy, by the way. Uh-huh. Like, <laughs> Thank you. A, it's a good, that's a good place to be in life too. It's not like there's anything wrong with not actively dating. Yeah. I just wanted to say yeah. that too. I, I appreciate that. But, but I do have two other partners and we have a weekly date night and between convenience and expense, it typically takes the form of one of us visiting the other one. And if it's my place, I'm cooking and we'll watch something together while cuddling on the couch. Um, but that's not the only thing we do. We also go to museums and restaurants. And when I have a first date and I'm trying to impress someone, I usually pick an Ethiopian restaurant, especially if they haven't been to one before. Mm-hmm. It's a because different experience. Oh, it really is. And one of the things the people who date me need to recognize is I am going to share my knowledge of every damn thing I have ever learned. And I am going to affect competent demonstrations of every practice I've ever come across. And I'm going to take the lead on all sorts of things. And and I need to make sure she's the kind that blushes and gets all giggly about that. <laughs> I love it. And and I will say mm-hmm. there is a bit of trickery involved in doing something that's new, right? That's going to like release a whole mm-hmm. bunch of brain chemicals that gets people more excited and and yeah, so I think it's a That's, that's why scary movies are a date standby too. <laughs> that's right. That's right. I love it. Get the adrenaline running. Well, thank you so much Alyssa for for everything that you've shared with us and mm-hmm. for your work. And just for being here today, is there anything that we haven't asked about or talked about that you wanted to make sure to share out into the world before we let you go today? Uh, you only asked about one of my pets. Oh, <laughs> we only asked about one. Well, we can see the aquariums and the and the cats roaming around. And so yeah, we... I don't know if you saw the other cat. There's a black one down here. Uh, in my personal website is alissacgonzalez.com. I assume there's going to be a text version of that, so I don't have to spell yep, it. You don't Correct. have to at all. <laughs> Excellent, because even my doctors get it wrong. <laughs> yep, we will have links to everything in the show notes. Not a problem. Mm-hmm. And Splendid. Yeah. Um, 
And I, I'm glad I managed to make time for you all. And I hope people enjoy what I've had to say and to diving into my website to macro dose the rest of my content and, and that I form an excellent piece of the grand tapestry of, of your back catalog. <laughs> we are excited about that. So thank you. And thank you for being a part of it. We appreciate it. Yes. Thank you so much and have a wonderful rest of your day. You as well. Take care. And we're back. <laughs> I thought you were going to say it. <laughs> no, I was just lip syncing. But nobody got to see me lip syncing. Except for me. I haven't closed my eyes and got into it <laughs> like I was a movie star, like a rock star. Uh, thank you so much, Alyssa, for coming on, sharing your story, and for the amazing work that you do. A quick reminder, go check out Alyssa's book, Non-Monogamy and Neurodiversity, and all of her work on her website. Links are in the show notes. At, norm- just, at normalizingnonmonogamy.com. What are you laughing about now? I was just thinking how good my Emma impressions are. <laughs> and then I was thinking, you know when you shouldn't do an Emma impression? When you're fighting. No, it's not good. Emma really doesn't like it when you do Emma impressions. <laughs> no, they're not good. <laughs> they're not, pre- they're they're not, not They are not conducive to resolving the conflict at hand. <laughs> no, they're not. <laughs> and something we go around and around and around about. <laughs> well, I agree that they are not a good idea. So, anyway. but this, this, this Emma impression was pretty good. That no one saw except for me. Yeah, but we've talked about it now <laughs> for quite a while. Anyway. Anyway, thank you, Alyssa, for coming on, for sharing your story, and for all of the incredible work you do. I'm blown away, and I'm so glad that we got to have this conversation. Yes. A few quick reminders. Again, we'll, we will be at Southwest Love Fest in Tucson, Arizona, April 14th to 16th, coming up this weekend. Love to have you join us. You can join the virtual option, too, and use the offer code EMMA, and you save 10%. Also, we have a virtual meet and greet coming up on April 29th. These are open to anyone. You just must be open-minded and respectful. You can sign up at our website, normalizingnonmonogamy.com. Click on the Events tab. And I think that's it. Next week. Do you have anything else to add? No, I zoned out for a few minutes while you were t- talking. <laughs> okay, got it. But I'm back, and I think I think I heard you say everything that was important. Okay. Next week, we have... I can do this part. Okay, go for it. Next week, we're talking with Libby, Kier, and Drew. We are talking to another sort of triad, a family living together under one roof, three adults, two kids. It's amazing. Yes. And Libby is, for anybody who's not familiar, Libby is the host of the Making Polyamory Work podcast and an incredible, another incredible member of the podcasting non-monogamy relationship community. Yes. And she was also previously on our podcast, episode 98, and a Focus Friday season one, episode nine on transition transitioning relationships. Both of those episodes, we highly encourage you to go listen to them. They're not necessarily... They're not necessary to listen to before next week, but they're still great episodes. Go listen. And Olivia's podcast, Making Polyamory Work, is also amazing. Yes. And the editing on that show. <laughs> oh, mwah, it is. It, Pat yourself on the back. It is. Hold on. No <laughs> It's just really great editing from everything I've ever heard. Yeah. All right. (laughs) By the way, I work with Libby to edit her podcast. Anyway. Anyway, we will see you all after Southwest Love Fest. We'll see you next week for that wonderful conversation. Until then, have a great weekend. Bye, everyone. Thanks for listening.